1532, Henry at last begins to bring his long divorce case to a close. But what had finally pushed him into action that year? Well, he had been moving slowly towards what historians call imperium, giving himself more power by taking control of the church. But up till now, he'd made no really decisive move. And he had, seven years after the start of the campaign, finally sent Catherine of Aragon away from court. But as for Anne Boleyn, he still hadn't yet even given her a title fit for a queen to be. As always in this story, it's Henry's foreign policy that dictates the moment of decisive change. And in this case, it's a chain of events that first started on the 20th of September 1529, outside the walls of Vienna. Hello, good to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank. And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Café, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. Hello and welcome to History Café, although we're actually calling it History Kitchen Table because we're recording this series on Henry under lockdown. Apart from that, everything else is the same. On the 20th of September 1529, the Turkish army of Suleiman the Lawgiver, usually known in the West as Suleiman the Magnificent, had arrived at the walls of Vienna. The siege of Vienna in 1529 was terrifying but brief, and on the 17th of October, Suleiman took the decision to retreat. Before he left, he presented his French liaison officer with three Arab horses and a stuffed crocodile. Now, the horses and the crocodile are significant because the gift betrays the secret deal that the French had done with the Turks. While the French King Francis had loudly and publicly backed the Pope's call for a crusade against the invading Muslim Turks, behind the scenes he'd done a deal with Suleiman. In fact, they were working together to fight the Spanish and their relations and allies in Austria and Germany, in what was known as the Holy Roman Empire. In the balance of European power, this Franco-Turkish alliance mattered. Suleiman's army was better organised and better funded than any in the West. Its sudden withdrawal from Vienna in October 1529 had been one key factor in persuading the French that they couldn't themselves take any action against Charles V and the Spanish, at least for the time being. And that, in turn, had left Henry isolated and unable to act. But by the spring of 1531, it was obvious to everyone that Suleiman was energetically preparing another attack. Reports began to reach the West of alarming activity in the Sultan's arsenal and a huge army assembling of Tartars, Vlachs and other supposedly warlike peoples. While Suleiman was also preparing an enormous fleet with 40,000 Asapi mariners under the command of Herr Ad-Din, known to Western history as the legendary Barbarossa, or he'd be the scourge of the Mediterranean as the century went on. Now this justifiably terrified Pope Clement. His papal states were, after all, just a short voyage from what was then Turkish-held territory across the Adriatic. But the Turks were not the only problem faced by Clement and his Spanish allies. They were also trying to contain a revolt in Germany. 
As we saw at an earlier discussion, after 1525, Luther and other German theologians had broken with the Roman Church. In February 1531, this religious antipathy had coalesced with political resistance to Charles V's power in Germany. The local rulers in northern Germany had approached the French for support and they'd wanted to draw Henry in also. By the summer of 1531, it had therefore seemed very likely that Clement and Charles would soon be faced with a major assault from the Turks and the possibility that the Protestant Germans would exploit it. The French would certainly back both against Charles and then make a show of saving the Pope. Francis, the French king, was now skillfully manipulating the Pope's predicament, leaning on him still further to wean him away from the Spanish. He proposed that his 12-year-old son, Henri d'Orléans, should marry the Pope's 12-year-old niece, Catherine of Medici. Well, they could all meet in Marseille for the wedding. Oh, and Francis also suggested that while they were there, Clement could meet with Henry and they could all sort out his marital problem. Well, it was a brilliant ploy. Flattered by Francis's marriage offer, and with the Turks threatening to invade, and with the German Protestants in revolt, and his main ally Charles protesting painfully that he had no cash to do anything, Pope Clement needed any friend he could make. He really wasn't difficult to persuade. Well, once you survey all this frantic activity across Europe, it's no wonder that by the start of 1532, Henry was feeling confident. Whatever moves he made against Catherine, it was very unlikely the Spanish would be able to do anything about it. And whatever action he took against the church, it seemed unlikely the Pope would be up for a fight. There was just one more thing that Henry needed before he would take the plunge. From 1531 and into 1532, international events were becoming more and more favourable for Henry. Was it now time, at last, for him to move towards taking over the English church and, incidentally, sorting his marriage out? Well, 1532 didn't start very well. Christmas 1531 at Greenwich had been miserable. To everyone's dismay, they discovered that Anne Boleyn was in charge instead of Catherine. In January 1532, Henry found to his aggravation that Parliament was still in no mood to back his campaign for an imperium to take control of the church. Many MPs got up and demanded Henry take Catherine back. The aged Archbishop of Canterbury, William Warham, even demanded that Henry repeal all the measures he'd recently taken against the English church. But Henry was in no mood to compromise. He dispatched the Duke of Norfolk and the Earl of Wiltshire, that's Anne Boleyn's uncle and father, to the Upper House of Convocation, that's the Church's own Parliament. Well, intervening directly in Convocation was an unprecedented move, and seeing the two noblemen, most of the assembled bishops and abbots fled. The elderly Archbishop Warham and the few others who remained meekly agreed that from now on the English Church would no longer be able to make any of its own laws without the King's consent. It was an enormous concession, and it wouldn't be long now before Henry put himself completely in charge of the English church. Warham would die in August 1532. He'd been one of the most stubborn opponents of Henry's attack on the church. When he died, they found by his bedside an unfinished speech. Warham compared himself to Thomas Becket, his predecessor as Archbishop. Becket was, you remember, martyred in 1170, killed in his cathedral by Henry II's knights. 
his crime had been to stand up to his king. But by the time he died, Warham was irrelevant. As everybody had expected, in May 1532, the Turks had launched their attack on Charles V's lands in Central Europe. They moved by land and sea with their fleet under the notorious commander Barbarossa. By now the French had concluded agreements to work not only with the Turks, but also with the German Protestants. Charles V of Spain, facing attack on all sides, was so desperate he even pleaded with Henry for help. Of course, Henry turned him down. But Henry was now confident that he could do what he liked with Catherine and Charles would not be able to do anything about it. Finally, Henry could put the last piece of the puzzle into place. In June 1532, he signed a new treaty with the French. Publicly, they said it was to join forces in a crusade against the barbarian Turks. Privately, of course, Henry and Francis had absolutely no intention of doing that. What they intended to do was to join forces against Charles V. So, Henry was now set to take action. As in every previous turning point in this story, Henry's move onto the offensive followed a rapprochement with the French. This time, he and Francis, the French king, even arranged to meet in Calais and Boulogne. It would be the first time they'd met since they'd wrestled at the rain-soaked Field of the Cloth of Gold in 1520. So, on the 1st of September 1532, with a French treaty safely in his pocket and the visit to Calais agreed, Henry at last made the gesture he'd so pointedly avoided making for the last five years. He created Anne Boleyn, the Marchioness of Pembroke. But why does that matter? It means that, after all this time as nothing but a mistress, Berlin at last had a title that made her fit to marry a monarch. Though apparently Henry hadn't yet finally made up his mind to marry her. As we saw last time, he included a clause which allowed any yet-to-be-born son to inherit from Anne, even if born out of wedlock. When the French community in London heard about the meeting in France, they thought Henry was off to marry a French princess. But when on the 25th of September 1532 Henry crossed the Channel to Calais, which at that time you remember the English still owned, he took Anne, the brand new Marchioness of Pembroke, with him. Henry asked Catherine to hand over her jewels for Anne to wear for the French king. Catherine replied, quotes, I would consider it a sin and a load upon my conscience if I were persuaded to give up my jewels for such a wicked purpose as that of ornamenting a person who is the scandal of Christendom. Well, Henry ordered Catherine to hand them over anyway. Henry and Anne stayed in Calais until the end of October. Anne never left the town. The French apparently didn't want her on their territory. But Henry went along the coast and met King Francis at Boulogne. The French king presented him with white velvet and satin robes that matched his own. Then they went to Catholic Mass, dressed as twins. French honours were bestowed on the Dukes of Norfolk and Suffolk and on Thomas Audley, who had led the discussions. Thomas Cromwell, you'll note, was nowhere. Henry gave English honours to France's leading men. Then they got down to the real business, which was discussing military and diplomatic cooperation between them. It was only two years, you remember from our last discussion, since Francis had made his extraordinary offer to send French troops to England to defend it against the Spanish invasion. The twins, Henry and Francis, heard reports from Rome that the Pope was horrified at rumours that they were intending to set up their own national churches in France and England. And they were happy to let him think that. 
They even seem to have discussed calling their own general council, Clement's worst nightmare, since a council had more power than the Pope. Instead, they offered to meet the Pope to discuss things on neutral ground, say in Avignon or Nice in France. This was when they discussed Francis's plan to tempt the Pope to abandon his Spanish friends by marrying his feisty young niece, Catherine de' Medici, to the French king's second son, and to use the occasion in Marseille to sort Henry's marital problem out face to face. Only at the very end of Henry's visit to France did King Francis ride along to the English-held Calais to meet Anne. Well, she'd been made to his first wife, so you wonder what he thought of her now. Perhaps pointedly, none of the French lady courtiers chose to go along with him. Well, there was an extravagant feast. The English had brought 2,000 noblemen across the Channel and all the food they would need. A thousand cattle, a thousand sheep, cages of live birds and barrels of fish. Uh, Seabirds were freshly caught in Calais. At the banquet for Francis, 170 dishes were served and 3,000 guns were fired. Anne, her sister, and five other masked ladies performed a disguising, quite gorgeously apparelled. And Francis presented Anne with an enormous diamond. He then danced with her, and went on dancing with her, until Henry at last stepped in to separate them. The French king then took Anne aside, and they spent an hour in an alcove, chatting intimately, presumably in French, and overheard by no one. But it's what happened next that was the most significant part of the whole trip. Henry had met up with the French king in Boulogne and Calais. They discussed joint plans to attack the Spanish. By the time the junketing was over, Henry had assured himself that the French still needed his support. Now, on the journey back from France, Henry made one of his most significant moves so far. Henry and Anne dallied. They put off their voyage for a fortnight, blaming bad weather. Once across the Channel, they took a full ten days to cover the 60 miles from Dover to the Royal Palace at Eltham, where they arrived on Sunday the 24th of November. Exactly 41 weeks later, Anne gave birth to her daughter Elizabeth. They'd got pregnant on the trip back from France. It had, of course, been important for Henry to prove Anne's fertility before marrying her. Having sex after engagement, but before marriage, wasn't unusual for an aristocratic or even for a commoner couple in early modern England. Whatever we were all told at school, Anne had not bounced Henry into marriage by getting pregnant. She'd simply proved that, after all the effort, she was actually worth marrying. The best evidence is that once the pregnancy was confirmed, Henry married Anne. It was a private ceremony, sometime toward the end of January 1533. Henry replaced Warham, the dead Archbishop of Canterbury, with one of his team of theologians, Thomas Cranmer. We we met him before. He was the man who had, back in 1529, suggested canvassing university opinions on Henry's case. Getting him installed as Archbishop required the Pope's agreement. Clement willingly gave it, still keen to keep Henry on side but he must have guessed what was coming next. As for Henry, he'd taken careful account of the European situation. As in all the previous turning points in this saga, his decision had principally been governed by his relationship with the French. He'd calculated that with the French so actively courting his support, he was in a strong enough position to defy the Pope and go ahead and get remarried. 
he would also soon be able to pass the necessary legislation to take over the English church. But this time something was very different. After all these years, Henry's priorities had changed. We know because the French were completely horrified at what Henry had done. Whatever had been discussed in Boulogne and Calais, Francis had clearly not consented to any such thing as actually getting Anne Boleyn pregnant. It was as if a bomb had been lobbed into all the years of sensitive negotiations to keep the Pope on their side. Wasn't Francis's own son supposed to be marrying the Pope's niece? Wasn't Henry supposed to be coming to their wedding in Marseille so that he could hold secret talks and patch things up with the Pope? None of that was going to happen if Henry was just going to ignore the Pope and get Anne pregnant and marry her without even a proper divorce. But playing this Anglo-French game had apparently slipped down Henry's agenda. Gone were the days when getting rid of Catherine was a piece of his diplomacy. When he was playing his divorce for a diplomatic gain, stringing the French along, keeping the Pope suspended uncomfortably between the two sides. Now Henry had just ignored the French and the Pope. The new French ambassador to England, Jean de Dardeville, was urgently instructed to keep Anne's pregnancy secret for as long as possible, along with the news that Henry planned to get his new archbishop, Thomas Cranmer, to annul his marriage. In fact, Cranmer wasted no time at all, announcing that Henry's marriage to Catherine of Aragon had never existed before God, and that he was perfectly at liberty to marry Anne. Around Easter 1533, Hans Holbein, who'd been painting portraits at Henry's court on and off since 1526, painted a large canvas of this French ambassador and a man who's probably his gay lover, Georges de Selve. The painting's now in the National Gallery in London and is known as The Ambassadors. Go and see it if you can. From clues in the painting, we know it's meant to be 11th of April 1533. Now that was the day Henry's Privy Council formally accepted Anne as Queen. It was also Good Friday, and according to calculations at the time, reckoned to be exactly 1,500 years to the day since Christ was crucified. It could hardly have represented a more solemn moment. The ambassador in the painting had previously spent months in Rome, negotiating with the Pope on Henry's behalf, so he knew Anne's case intimately. The painting is full of symbolism, and there are many different interpretations. But almost everyone agrees that it shows a world broken, threatened by turbulence and confusion, perhaps even chaos. A lute lies between the two men. Its broken string seems to sum up a world out of tune, lost, unable to sing. At one level, it expresses the sense among the French that their long work for harmony with Henry had snapped. They were no longer working together. The French were frustrated with Henry for having unilaterally made Anne his queen. The new French ambassador had even had Hans Holbein paint a picture of him, surrounded with symbols of a broken alliance with the English, or perhaps even a broken world where Christendom had been divided by schism. But if the French ambassador was miserable, should we imagine that elsewhere in the palace, with his new wife five months pregnant, Henry had at last become the merry monarch of legend? Well, maybe after the jaunt of France he was, but it doesn't take much to work out that his new marriage was also the best of a bad job. After all, 
if he couldn't get a papal annulment of his marriage, no other royal family in the world was ever going to let him marry one of their princesses. Unless, that is, she was from one of the little Protestant German dukedoms which had rejected the Pope. But they hardly counted it in international affairs. Henry would make that mistake in January 1540 when he married Anne of Cleves. Six months later, he divorced her. Marrying a girl from one of the great old English aristocratic houses would also have been a disaster. Getting tangled up with one of those would only cause jealousy and backbiting from all the others. Henry made that mistake in July 1540 when he married Catherine Howard. Nine months later, he beheaded her. But Henry had to marry someone, because having declared his marriage to Catherine invalid, he'd made his only daughter and heir, Mary, illegitimate. He needed a new one. Boy or girl, as we shall see, it didn't matter. The plain fact was that in 1533, he might as well marry Anne Boleyn. She was in royal terms and nobody. Well, she was the niece of the Duke of Norfolk. But if she could produce an heir, so well and good. In the end, as we know, Anne had one child, Elizabeth and the marriage lasted barely three years. Let's put it this way. Henry might or might not have been in love with Anne Boleyn. It doesn't really matter. The reason he promoted her from mistress to queen was in order to procure a new legitimate heir. It had no more to do with love than almost any other royal marriage. But nor was it any longer to do with foreign affairs, as Henry's long divorce campaign had always been in the early days, when he'd first distanced himself from Catherine. Henry's mind was now very much on Imperium, giving himself absolute power. It was now that Henry set out his manifesto of Imperium. It came, as we saw in our very first discussion in this series, in March 1533 in an Act of Parliament. In that month, a bill drafted by Thomas Audley was introduced into the Commons. It was intended to prevent Catherine or any other of the King's subjects ever appealing to the Pope. There was opposition from some MPs who feared Charles V would respond by shutting off England's crucial wool trade to Antwerp. In fact, there was very little danger that Charles would do anything. His attention, as Henry had carefully assured himself before having the bill presented, was wholly focused on the Turks and the German Protestants. Actually, there had probably never been any question that Charles would declare war on Henry over Catherine. Catherine didn't want it. Charles couldn't afford it. The bill quickly became law. As we saw before, this act in restraint of appeals is what historians might call the locus classicus of Henrician Imperium. In other words, the place where he set out his theory most clearly. Its preamble first cites Henry's collection of old manuscripts, the Collectonia Satis Copiosa. Quotes, By diverse, sundry, old, authentic histories and chronicles, it is manifestly declared and expressed that this realm of England is an empire. Having mentioned the word empire, the preamble then goes on to boast that the English king is, quote, institute and furnished by the goodness and sufferance of almighty God, with plenary, whole and entire power, preeminence, authority, prerogative and jurisdiction. So there you have it. Henry was a king with imperium, without any rival in his realm. Henry's divorce had begun with foreign policy. But over the years, and especially since 1530, his grab for power had played a more and more important part. In the end, the last word in the saga was Imperium, asserting the king's authority over his last great rival in England, the church. By now, Henry had given up on the French, but the French had not yet given up on him.
Henry had married Anne Boleyn, had his marriage to Catherine declared invalid and banned all appeals to Rome. Henry's French allies were appalled. Keeping the Pope on their side and out of Spanish control would be much more difficult now. But the French weren't going to give up straight away. They needed the English and the papacy too badly. So they pressed on with the plan, which you recall was discussed when Henry and Francis met in Boulogne, to meet again in Marseille. There they would marry the French king's 14-year-old son to Pope Clement's 14-year-old niece, Catherine de' Medici. And more important, they would use the occasion to orchestrate a reconciliation between Henry and Rome. The wedding was planned for October 1533. Now the Spanish had taken all the boats, so Clement sailed along the coast to Marseille in French ships. The full English delegation did not, however, arrive. According to the account our old friend Jean du Bellay drew up some years later, Henry had promised to come in person, but in the event he'd sent the Duke of Norfolk and Anne's brother Lord Rochford and a few other leading councillors. They met up with the French king in the Auvergne. Jean du Bellay rode with them and recalled their mood of optimism. But while they were sheltering in Lyon from the summer heat, a messenger arrived post-haste from Rome. He was riding for the English court. He was carrying the news that the Pope had passed a sentence of excommunication against Henry. Clement later told Du Bellay that Charles V's supporters in Rome kept bursting into his rooms, accusing him of favouring the English. And someone, he said, was spreading rumours that characters had been capering through the streets of London dressed as cardinals, carrying prostitutes on their backs. In the end, Pope Clement had given in and excommunicated Henry. But nothing, he told Du Bellay, would actually happen if Henry was excommunicated. It could still all be patched up. Du Bellay remembered making frantic attempts to persuade the English in Lyon that they could sort it all out in Marseille. They decided to send Anne's brother Rochford home to consult the king. But when he came back, he was full of Henry's recriminations, and most of the English delegation packed up and went home. Only the Bishop of Winchester, our old friend Stephen Gardiner, and the Bishop of London were left to go on to Marseille to see if anything could be salvaged. A month later, Francis briefed Du Bellay on what had happened when they'd all got to Marseille. Clement had offered to help Francis obtain the city-state of Milan for himself if only he would stay out of Henry's affair. But Francis had turned the Pope down. He claimed that, instead, he then patiently negotiated the Pope's agreement to do everything possible to assist Henry in his annulment and then to lift the sentence of excommunication. But then, to his horror, after all that, Francis discovered the two English bishops in an angry row with Clement, the Pope folding and unfolding his handkerchief as he did when he was upset. See, the English were loudly demanding a general council of the church, which was probably the thing Clement feared the most. It was the very worst thing they could have said. King Francis was incandescent. He accused the English of undoing a week's work in an hour. As fast as I studied to win the Pope, ye studied to lose him. Ye've clearly marred all. It was bizarre, insulting. The fact was that ever since the French had abandoned him and signed peace with the Spanish in 1529, Henry had been losing interest in them. The old game of playing along with the Pope in order to keep the French on side was over. The Spanish had been seriously weakened by the long wars and by the threat of Turkish invasion and revolt in Germany. Henry was less in need now of his French allies. They needed him more than he needed them. Henry's mind was now on Imperium. But still the French didn't give up. 
In March the next year, 1534, Henry quietly took a walk with another new French ambassador in a garden, probably at Greenwich. By now, he'd been married to Anne for over a year. The French ambassador had been trying yet again to persuade Henry's Privy Council to accept a peace plan with the Pope. Henry's councillors had adamantly refused to agree, but in the garden, Henry privately told the French ambassador he would sign the necessary papers so long as it remained a secret. They even quietly hatched a plot to marry one of Pope Clement's nephews to Henry's daughter Mary, or another of Henry's relations. So apparently, even as late as the spring of 1534, the game to get the Pope on side against the Spanish was just about still in play, even in Henry's mind. But by now it was in extra time. A couple of weeks later, 23rd of March 1534, 22 cardinals met in Rome. They voted unanimously that Henry's marriage to Catherine had always been valid. They confirmed Clement's excommunication of Henry and they excommunicated Anne for good measure. By now, Catherine had been packed off to a damp castle in East Anglia. Anne had had her baby, Elizabeth. Henry had made himself head of the church in England and taken his greatest stride towards Imperium. So that was that. Well, almost. Henry went on flirting with Rome until the end of his life in 1547. Next time at the History Cafe, we're going to go back and take a look at the character who, you've noticed, has been largely absent from our account. We think Anne Boleyn's influence over Henry and over his break with Rome has been wildly exaggerated. Well, next time, we'll see how, why and by whom. For more on this story and others at our History Cafe, go to historycafe.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have. Or contact us on social media at History Cafe Pod. <laughs>